maybe turn on the podium mic. That might help a little bit. So we're going to have that distraction to start off with this morning. <laughs> I'm excited to continue my look at the book of Hebrews and share some of the things that I've studied with you today. And for those of you that are visiting with us, I'm sorry you're catching us mid-series, uh, but I try to make these sermons as standalone as possible, so hopefully you'll find something uh, of use to, to take out of our sermon this morning. We are talking about Christ having been offered the text, which comes from Hebrews chapter 9, we'll get to in just a second. But as the writer of Hebrews has gone through the book and has attempted to show that the, his audience, these Jewish Christians in the first century, that Christ is superior to the Old Covenant, superior to this law that they have known for their entire lives, superior, superior to the angels, to Moses and the Levitical priesthood, the Levitical sacrifices. We're down here in chapters 9 and 10 today is what we're going to cover. And we're going to talk about the offering of Jesus in more detail. And I've been doing this about a year now, so I don't have time to go through every sermon anymore to, to, to recap. But starting back in chapter 4, we find that the writer begins this discourse on Christ as our great high priest. And as we think about that in terms of uh, what that means for us, he goes through a, a lot of arguments showing that and proving that, showing why that's important. We have that warning uh, there in chapters 5 and 6 of, of, to avoid apostasy, to have a full assurance of hope in, in Jesus. We talk about uh, his priesthood compared to Melchizedek in chapter 7, the more excellent ministry, a better covenant. And last time we talked about this greater and more perfect tent. We talked about the fact that the old covenant uh, was their way of worship. And we talked about the, uh, the, the furnishings in the tabernacle, the, the table of showbread, the lampstand, the altar of incense, the ark of the covenant, all those things. Their method of worship, the Day of Atonement, which was a once-a-year thing when the high priest would come and offer blood there on the mercy seat of the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. And that's a very simplified explanation of what the Day of Atonement was. But the Day of Atonement was a shadow or a copy of the true offering in the true tabernacle that Jesus Christ made for us. And that's that true offering we want to zoom in on this morning and talk about. In verse number 28 of Hebrews 9, he says, Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And so as sort of a roadmap this morning of the points that we're going to hit, we want to zoom in on the offering of Jesus and talk about what it does for us and what it should mean for us. And so we're going to talk about the fact that the offering of Jesus ratified and empowered the new covenant, how it was a once-for-all offering how it was planned and appointed by God, and finally, that it accomplished God's will or his divine purpose in reconciling us to him. And so we want to start with this idea of the fact that the offering of Jesus ratified and empowered the new covenant. Now, ratified is not a word we use a lot. If you've taken government classes, I'm sure you're familiar with that word, how the government will have to ratify certain bills, maybe constitutional amendments, Originally, the, the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, those had to be ratified by a certain number of delegates, if you will. And what that means is it basically empowered those documents. And so when we say that the offering of Jesus or his death on the cross ratified the new covenant, what we mean by that is it empowered the new covenant. It caused it to become effective in our lives. And considering some of the covenants that God has made with his people over the years, we're not going to read all these passages. They're just reverence to show where you can find these covenants. 
the covenant with Noah not to destroy the world again with the flood. We still see that today with the sign of the covenant being the rainbow. The covenant God made with Abraham that he would bless him, make his name great, that he would give him the land and his descendants the land of promise, that he would, through his seed, all nations of the earth would be blessed, speaking of Christ. The covenant that God made with the children of Israel through Moses, the, the covenant that he said, if you keep my word, I will bless you. They didn't. Uh, the covenant he made with David, which was basically an extension of the promise made to Abraham, that the Messiah would come through the line of David, that he would establish his throne forever. And then finally, the new covenant that was promised in Jeremiah chapter 31, where, where God said, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, the house of Judah. That is the covenant that we serve God under today. So keep these covenants in sort of your back of your mind. And it kind of gives us an idea of what a covenant is. Because, again, that's not a word that we use to describe uh, things that we do. We make contracts, and a covenant is kind of like a contract, but it's more than that. It's, it's more powerful. And so consider these as we go through this first part of this sermon. Starting in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15. He says, Therefore he is a mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. So I want to draw your attention to a couple of the words here, the word covenant, and then down here the word will. And I want us to understand that these words are translated from the same Greek word, basically. It's this word called diatheke, and the only difference between these two words is the fact that the where it's translated covenant, there's a the Greek letter sigma or S on the end of that. And Greek, Greek words, they change the endings sometimes depending on how you use them. And I'm not going to get into the weeds because, quite frankly, I'm not an expert. But basically, if it's singular, it's plural, it's past tense, present tense, so on and so forth. But it's the same word. And so when he says covenant, and then he says will, the translators, this is the ESV, the translators you know, they, they detected this slight variation, maybe, in the way that that sigma was placed on the end. Whatever the case may be, some scholars think that it should be covenant in both places. Indeed, some translators have covenant. Some translations do have covenant in both places. Some translations use the word testament. So it's just, he's trying to show us that he's talking about the same thing, but the, the wording he used down there is a word that we understand in our modern language in vernacular when, he, when we speak about a will. So if you continue on to verse number 17, it says, For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. So we understand this concept of a last will and testament. And that's something we understand, and we understand how that works. I have my own will. This is a, a digital uh, sort of screenshot of, of my will that I have in the safe at my house. And basically, it, it lays out, this is what I want to happen when I die. I, Jason Westbrook, so on and so forth. You know, I make this my last will or my will. List out my family. List out my children. I find this uh, phrase down here interesting. Uh, my children shall refer to all children of mine, whether born or adopted, subsequent to the day of this will. I don't think that's going to happen. This was just made last year, so hopefully that didn't happen. But it tells this is what I want to have when I die. And I had to have, sign it and date it. I had to have it notarized. I've redacted the names of the witnesses to protect their innocence. But as you can see, this is an official document. But right now, sitting at home in my safe, it means nothing. It's worth the paper it's written on, and that's it. Why? Because I'm still alive. 
It really doesn't mean anything. And so the vast quantities of wealth that I have, they're still mine until I die. Nobody else gets them until I die. That was a joke, too. Okay. We understand how it really works. Well, the Bible, the writer of Hebrews is saying here that the New Testament, the New Covenant, is exactly the same way. It took the death of Jesus in order to empower or ratify that covenant. And that's important for us to understand. Now, he contrasts that now with the law of Moses or with the covenant that God made with Israel through Moses. He says in verse 18 of Hebrews 9, Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And here's the passage in Exodus chapter 24 where it shows exactly what Moses did. He took that blood and after he had read the book of the law, the people, the people said, okay, we'll do what God says to do. They didn't. But Moses said, okay, this is the blood of the covenant. And he took that blood and he threw it on the people. And he threw it on the altar and he, put, he sprinkled it on, on the book itself. That's kind of gross, isn't it? Imagine somebody standing, imagine me with this big bucket of blood and just throwing it on all you this morning. Why? Well, because the covenant required it. The covenant required that blood. It required a death. The death of an animal. But that's what God required in order to establish that covenant with the children of Israel. He says in verse 21, in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used to worship. Indeed, under the law, Almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Now, what we're going to find later as we go along, the blood of those animals didn't do anything, except it was what God told them to do. But that blood couldn't take away their sins. All it could do was establish the covenant between God and Israel. But Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 18, excuse me, chapter 1, verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You see, it took something much more powerful than the blood of those animals to accomplish God's purpose in redeeming us for our sin, ransoming us. It took the precious blood of Christ to do that. It took the blood of Jesus to empower the new covenant. So when you consider these covenants that we mentioned this morning in sort of a timeline fashion, the covenant God made with Noah, that, that exists up until this, until this time. We see the sign of the covenant still in the sky sometimes after it rains. God won't destroy the world in a flood again. The covenant he made with Abraham that all nations will be blessed through him. That's Jesus. That's us. That's, that's basically the promise of the new covenant, right? The, the Davidic covenant is extension to that. He told David, I'm going to establish your throne forever. The Messiah will come from your line. But notice this, the Mosaic covenant, the old covenant, the law of Moses, the, the, the Hebrew writer has already told us that that is what is old, waxing old, is ready to vanish away. It's obsolete. It's like, if you remember the example I used, it's like a three and a half inch floppy disk that we used to use 20 years ago, 30 years ago in computers. It's It's useless can't accomplish anything. So it ended when Jesus died on the cross and the new covenant then began. And you can almost fold all of those other lines down into the line that comes from the cross there. So the offering of Jesus empowered the new covenant. Now, secondly, the offering of Jesus was once for all. 
It was a one and done sacrifice. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 23. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. So he tells us here, this is why it was necessary for Moses to sprinkle the blood on the people, because it had to be purified with these, because why? Because it is a copy of true things. We've talked about that a lot recently. Now the law of Moses were shadows or copies of the true heavenly things. He said, and that's why blood had to be used, because it had, it, it had to be that sign or that symbol, if you will, of the true thing, which was the blood of Jesus. But those heavenly things had to be sanctified or purified with better sacrifices. And that is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, Scripture says, From Jesus, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. And what the writer is doing here, he's building up to this point about a one-and-done sacrifice. Because as he's going to talk about repeatedly through the rest of his discourse here, those sacrifices were repeatedly done over and over. But the problem was is that wasn't effective. But Jesus has freed us from our sins by his own blood with that better sacrifice. Romans 8, 34, who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. This is the concept that he's, make, that he's pointing out down here. He's gone into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Because the sacrifice of Jesus was that effective. And if you think back to our roadmap, I forgot to mention at the time, there's a lot of overlap in those points that go, that's being woven all throughout this passage of scripture that we're considering this morning. So bear that in mind as well. Verse number 25 of Hebrews 9. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood not his own, but then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And so here's, now he's driving home this point of a once for all sacrifice. Now when we really consider what Jesus has done for us, price that he paid. I think even the descriptions that we read of in scripture regarding his suffering, I still don't think we truly understand what he went through on our behalf. I'm thankful he did it. I'm thankful that Jesus suffered for me. I wish it wasn't necessary, and I sure wouldn't want that to happen over and over and over again. He says, the writer says, Jesus didn't have to do that repeatedly. It was one and done. And I'm thankful for that as well. Because he has appeared once for all at the end of the age to put away sin. First Peter chapter 3, verse 18, he said, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. The sacrifice of Jesus was a one and done appointment. And that's what the, sort of what he's going to transition to with this next passage we're going to read here in verse 27. Just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So he says it's appointed 
for man to die once. He's using this word appointed to show a sort of one-time thing that's happening. Okay? So he says it's appointed for man, number one, to die once. Okay, we have the example here, Genesis 3, 19. By the sweat of your face shall you eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. If you were here Wednesday night, our brother Grant talked about this. He said, you know, when we're born into this world, we're born dying. We all have an appointment with death. Every single person dies. And it doesn't matter how much medicine you take, the vitamins or supplements or whatever fitness program that you're involved in, that I'm obviously not involved in. Eventually, it doesn't matter how well we take care of this body, it is going to die. That is an appointment we'll all keep. And that leads to the next appointment, which after that comes judgment. We are all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 and 10. You know, when people talk about fearing death, and even atheists, they say that death is just oblivion. Even they fear death, and what I think they fear is not death itself. Why would you fear nothingness? They, they're afraid that there isn't oblivion. They, they are aware subconsciously that there is a judgment to come. And that's the thing, that's the thing we need to be concerned about. And so he says, just like we have to die once and we have to face the judgment, so Christ also has been offered once, there's the text of our title, to bear the sins of many. It was appointed by God for Jesus to die on the cross once. Scripture says in Romans chapter 5 or 6, while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And that's leading to this final point that he makes here, which is that he will appear a second time, not to deal with sin. He did that first time he came. But the second time he appears, it will be to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. In Acts chapter 111, the angels that stood by as Christ ascended to heaven, they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The question we have to ask ourselves is, do we eagerly wait for him? Or do we wait for him with dread and fear? If we've given our lives to him, we stand in the blood of Jesus in the offering that was made on our behalf, we have no reason to fear. We have every reason to eagerly wait for his return. And so verses 1 through 4 of Hebrews chapter 10 are somewhat of a, a transition, if you will, or sort of ties some of these concepts together and begins to introduce another concept that, he, that will be our next point. And I thought it would be good just to sort of step through this passage a little bit and talk about what he's saying here. Hebrews 10, verse 1. For since the law is but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. It can't. This idea that the law, again, is a shadow of good things to come. He says because of that, it's not the true form. It's just a shadow. And so it can never, never make perfect those who draw near. It was never intended to do that. It was never God's plan for the law to make perfect those who are here. He says, otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? You know, at this time that this letter was written, Jerusalem had not been destroyed. The temple was still there. The priests were still making sacrifice. Going all the way back to the time of Moses, all these sacrifices were made, all those animals that were killed, all the blood that was shed over and over and over. He says, if that could make people perfect... Why would they not have ceased? The answer 
And so he says, you know, once having been cleansed, they would no longer have any consciousness for sins. They had that on their conscience. Every time a sacrifice was made, we know we still have our sins. That should have been on their minds. He says in verse 3, but in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year where it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It's not improbable. It's not unlikely. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It was never God's plan to do that with the covenant he made with Israel. And that leads us to our next point, which is that the offering of Jesus was planned and appointed by God. You know, there's this idea in some theology, especially theory of premillennialism, things like that, that the death of Jesus on the cross was plan B. That Jesus came to this earth to establish his kingdom, but was prevented in that by the Jews and by the Romans. And it's absurd when you put it that way. That's kind of what is implied by this idea that, well, he came to establish his kingdom, but he was put to death and he couldn't do it. That's, of course, not what happened. The offering of Jesus wasn't plan B. It was God's eternal purpose. It was planned before the foundation of the world. He says in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written in me in the scroll of the book. Now, when he says sacrifices and offerings you've not desired, he's talking about those sacrifices under the Old Testament. You've not desired those. You need something more. The blood of bulls and goats can't take away sin. Now, there's an issue here I want to address because we all face sometimes criticism and attacks on our faith by people, people who say the Bible contradicts itself. Um, and so you might look at this, even a casual observer will notice the difference between this passage here and the one he quotes in Psalm chapter 40. So in the Hebrew, in Hebrews, he says, sacrifices... An offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. Okay? Now, if you go read it in the book of Psalms, it reads, uh, you have given me an open ear. And somebody might look at that and say, well, well that's weird. The, the Hebrew writer got it wrong. He misquoted, or he intentionally changed it. Uh, I heard one man say, well, I think you know, the Hebrew writer was inspired by God, and he sort of had license to, to change it to be whatever. I don't like that answer. I don't like even inspired writers changing the written word of God. And that's not what's happened here. There's an explanation to this, and it's important that we understand this. The Hebrew writer is quoting from the Septuagint. And for those of you who don't know, the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the original Hebrew Bible. So it's the sort of Old Testament, if you will, that the Hebrew writer was using, that many of the New Testament writers, these men spoke Greek. They wrote in Greek. And so the, the Greek translation of the New Testament is what they're using. And so that is what the writer is quoting in Hebrews when he quotes this. And so then we have to ask ourselves the question, well, how come the Septuagint writers got it wrong? And the answer is, I don't think they did get it wrong. I think what they were doing was translating not the word, he said, but rather the intent behind the word. So we, we talk about word-for-word -word translations and thought-for-thought translations. <coughs> Typically, we prefer the word-for-word -word translation because it gets us closer to the original meaning without having to assume the original intent. But I think the intent of this is pretty clear, as, as we'll see. Here's some translations of this passage in other versions. King James, mine ears, thine, 
my ears, thine has opened. I don't think I, I don't think I typed that in right. My ears you have opened. That's the New King James. Uh, NASB says you have opened my ears. CEV says you made me willing to listen and obey. And the last one, my ears, my ears you have prepared. And so I think what we're seeing here is the intent behind this, and especially in the way that the Hebrew writer uses it here. It's all about establishing being hearing God's word and being obedient. There's a footnote in the ESV that gives sort of a literal translation which says, ears you have dug out for me. That kind of sounds painful. But what he's saying there is, you, you've given me this ear, these ears that are willing to hear your word and to obey your word. And that's the context he uses it in here. Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. You, a body... You have prepared for me a body that is prepared to do God's will, to hear his will, to know it, and to perform it. And that's exactly what the writer is saying. This, this psalm, if I can backtrack a little bit, this psalm is written by David, but it, this passage is written from the perspective of the Messiah and from the perspective of Christ. So when he says, a body you have given me, what he's saying is, I'm, I'm here to obey. I've come to do your will, O God. It was God's will that Jesus died on the cross. It was the plan from the beginning. Verse 9, then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first, that's the law of Moses or the old covenant, in order to establish the second, the new covenant. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. I've come to do your will. By that will. So we're not now talking about that same word. We're not talking about the covenant. We're talking about the will of God. God's purposes, his plans, his desires, what he wants for us. Jesus said, I've come to do your will. And by that will, or by God's will, we have been sanctified. John chapter 5, verse 30, I have to do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. My judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. In Matthew 26, 39, going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it, is, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus came to do the will of God. And it was God's will that he died on the cross that day. And because of that, because he was willing to do God's will, the offering of Jesus accomplished God's divine purpose. It accomplished his will. He goes on to say in chapter 10, verse 11, and every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never Take away sin. Those sacrifices, those priests offered, once again, they can never take away sin. But there's that crucial conjunction. When Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. It was effective. It worked. If you'll remember from our very first sermon in Hebrews, we talked about the prologue in chapter 1, the first three verses. And the writer of Hebrews is constantly referencing that with his teaching throughout the rest of the book. It's almost an outline, or at least an abbreviated outline of the entire book. And so he says there in verse 3, He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He's referencing that passage there. He sat down. Why did Jesus sit down? Because it worked. It accomplished God's will. The sacrifice of Jesus 
did what the sacrifices in the Old Testament could never do. And so he doesn't have to do it over and over. He did it once, and he sat down. Now, he didn't just sit down, pick up his feet. Hey, my part's done. No, he sits there, and he makes intercession for us. And he continually goes before God on our behalf as our mediator. But the sacrifice itself, one and done, and it worked. Because it was the precious blood of Christ. I go back to Ephesians because I love this passage anyway. I'm going to find any excuse I can to, to reference this passage. But also, there's a very direct connection here to what's going on. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places? Paul talks about exactly the same thing in the book of Hebrews. The next chapter, he relates it to us and shows how that benefits you and I, how even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And that's the powerful thing about the offering of Jesus and how it, when, when, he, when he sat down, guess what? We get to sit down with him. We're seated with Christ in the heavenly places. And we know that not because we can see it, but because we believe it through the eye. Now, there's a verse here I want to take a, just a little bit of a pull the car over in part for a second, as, as the saying goes, because it's important for us to consider this as well, I think. He says in verse 14, by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Notice he says he has perfected, which I will admit I didn't go back and just study uh, like crazy the, the Greek grammar here, but this is a past tense type of deal, and also those who are being sanctified. And so what we have here is a sort of a past and present thing going on. He has perfected, but we are being sanctified. Well, how does that work? And there's a kind of a dichotomy, I guess you could call it, that's going on here. And uh, I found this, this chart. This, again, is a chart I pulled from the Beginning of the Word uh, podcast or YouTube channel that I think is very helpful in understanding this concept. And so hopefully it can be helpful to you as well. The timeline of a human being, basically, or of a Christian is shown here, when at one point we were in sin and we were lost. But at some point we heard the gospel, it was preached to us, we believed it, we obeyed the gospel and immediately we were born again. And God sees us as sanctified and justified in His sight. But that doesn't mean that I as a person sort of miraculously become Christ, does it? It just simply means that God sees Christ when He, when he, when he looks at me. <coughs> But I have to learn. I have to grow. I have to sort of become as much as I can in the image of Christ. We call that sanctification. A process of sanctification. Even though we have been sanctified, we still are being sanctified. And so we get this slow process and we make progress and we grow year after year, day after day. Sometimes we dip down and we struggle. But we get back up and we keep trying. We don't give up. And we try to get to this point knowing that even at the end of my life, I'm never going to get to the end of it. I'm never going to, God is never going to look at me, Jason, and say, you're just as good as Jesus now. That's never going to happen. But it doesn't matter because I've been born again in the blood of Jesus. And that's what God really sees. But Jesus didn't sacrifice himself just so I could live whatever way I want to. That's not why he died on the cross. And so he perfected for all time those that are being sanctified. 
And it's a, a concept we see all throughout Scripture. We see in 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul talks about the gospel, he says, I will remind you, brothers, of the gospel which I preached to you, in which you receive, in which you stand, you've been saved, you've been perfected, and by which you are being saved. That's that process of being sanctified. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, for by grace you have been saved. Yeah, you're saved. God sees you as saved and sanctified. This is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works. You didn't earn it. God could never look at you and say you deserve this. But why did he do that? For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. That's learning to do the good works that God has set before us, that he's prepared before us to do. That's that process of sanctification. I hope that makes sense for you and hope you helps you understand that passage. So, verse 15. The Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the command, the covenant I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts, write them on their minds. And then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. He's quoting from Jeremiah 31 again here. This is the promise that God made. The promise of the new covenant. This is the fulfillment of that. Through the blood of Jesus, through the offering of Jesus Christ on the cross, he has put his law on our hearts. He's written it on our minds. He said, I will be your God. You shall be my people. That's what he said. Verse 18 is the key here. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. This is it. If your sins have been forgiven, there's no more offering to be made. Jesus died once. It was effective got the job done, it was God's will that it be that way. Now with this verse here, he's also going to come back and sort of reference this here later in chapter 10. Verse 26, he says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. And so what he does after this verse here, in verse 18, he's going to transition into a therefore. We'll read that here in a minute. But basically, it's like what Paul does in Ephesians. He spends three chapters laying out the theology and all these blessings we have in Jesus Christ and what God has done for us. And then he says, because of that, this is how you need to live. That's exactly what he does here in the second half, chapter 10. Because Jesus is our great high priest, this is how you need to live. But he ends it by saying this. If you keep going on sinning deliberately after you've been sanctified, after you have the knowledge of the truth, if you're looking for something besides the sacrifice of Jesus... You're not going to find it. There is no longer a sacrifice for sin when we go on sinning deliberately. There is no plan B. Jesus is the only way. The death of Jesus on the cross wasn't plan B. In fact, it wasn't even plan A. It was just plan. It was God's will. And there is no plan B. And if you don't accept the sacrifice of Jesus, there remains no sacrifice. That's all there is. What an amazing gift that God has given us. That the sacrifice of Jesus, the offering of Jesus on the cross, ratified and empowered the new covenant. How it was a once-for-all sacrifice. It was appointed by God to happen at just the right time. And it worked. It was effective. And so as Paul, Paul, the writer of Hebrews, That's another rabbit trail we're not going to go down. The writer of Hebrews, he then transitions into verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us, by the blood of Jesus, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great 
priest over the house of God. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. This is the therefore. He's just spent from chapter 4 to chapter 10 telling you about our great high priest and how effective that was and everything that he's done for us. He's proved it and he's shown it through scripture and through logic. This is the only way. Therefore, let us draw near. Let us draw near to God with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Remember we talked about Moses taking that blood and sprinkling on the people that ratified the old covenant? Brothers and sisters, you and I have been sprinkled clean by the blood of Jesus. Not physically. Our hearts have been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. There is no longer a reminder of sins every year as we watch people go and make sacrifices over and over and over. Jesus did it once. And when we obeyed the gospel in baptism, we were sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. I've said it before. Uh, Brother Jeffrey does a great job of keeping our baptistry clean, but it's not going to take away sins. But it's in the waters of baptism when our bodies are washed clean, not with water, but with the blood Have you done that? Have you made the commitment to take advantage of the only sacrifice you're going to find to take away your sins? Have you drawn near to God with a true heart of faith? Have you had your heart sprinkled clean by the blood of Jesus? Do that today if you have We stand ready to help you with that in any way. If you need the prayers of this congregation for any reason, please come have a seat on our front row while we stand and sing.